0: now from the Sunbury Motors studio here's Steve Jones Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury Sunbury Motors Kia Brutes 11 and 15 Hummels Warp online at sunburymotors.com Ford Kia, Hyundai, the best in new inventory all with great warranties makes a big difference fabulous pre-owned inventory with the Sunbury Motors guarantee and a great service department that backs all of this up at sunbury motors 4th street in sunbury sunbury motors key routes 11 and 15 hummels wharf and online at sunbury time now for our play-by-play call of the day James looking for a screen from Embiid top of the key, right hand dribble collides with the defender, back out to Joel Embiid shooting a three, it's good Joel Embiid firing from long range and he knocks down a three Sixers 98 Boston 81 Brilliant performance by the MVP last night he had really been no better than average during the series last night he was the MVP all right. Let's bring in Ray Diddinger. Ray, it's always great to hear from you. First of all, how are you doing?
1: Doing fine, Steve. How about yourself?
0: Doing great. Thanks for asking. All right. So, this is exciting news uh, when it comes to uh, Tommy and me because you are, it's not just the fact that it's back, but you've got a big time actor that's going to play Tommy McDonald.
1: <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, Gordon Clapp, who uh, was on all 12 seasons of NYPD Blue, and in fact, uh, what was a very good cast, I mean, David Caruso, Jimmy Smits, I mean, and David, uh, Dennis France, I mean, they had some really good people, yes. uh, and the only actor from that, that show that won an Emmy was indeed Gordon Clapp, so... Um, the bucks county playhouse in new hope decided that uh, the run last year was so successful that they wanted to bring the play back again this year and this time they wanted to do it as their own production so they hired a a different director and they hired an all-new cast uh... of tv veterans and some broadway people uh... and they're bringing them in and uh... And we're going to do Tommy and Me all over again um, at the Bucks County Playhouse, starting in just a couple of weeks. And we're going to have a, we're going to be there for a full month. And uh, Gordon Clapp is uh, now I've gotten to know him. I never met him before until we started rehearsal, but he's a great guy. And as it turns out, even though he grew up in New England, uh, he grew up as a Tommy McDonald fan because you know he was he was the smallest kid in his neighborhood. He always you know wanted to play football with the big guys. And you know when he watched the NFL on TV back then in the '60s, he took a, he took a to tommy mcdonald and here he is getting the opportunity to play him on stage and he's really excited about it
0: that that is that's tremendous uh, because he, he still spends a lot of his time i think up in vermont and in boston uh, most of the time uh, and the fact that he, he that he's a big tommy mcdonald fan i think that's really cool
1: yeah, it really is. I mean, when I met him, I fully expected that I was going to have to spend like a whole day explaining to him who Tommy McDonald was. And right. uh, oh no, no, no! He said to me, "He said, oh, no, when I was a kid, he said he was my favorite player. He said I followed the Patriots. He said, but that was the early days of the AFL. But you know, watching <laughs> football on TV, the guy that the guy that just uh, I couldn't take my eyes off of was Tommy McDonald. And he said it's it's really a kick to come down here and actually find myself playing him on stage. So uh, he's he's really into it, and um, and he's a terrific actor. Uh, it, and you have to be. I mean, you don't have. They've only got three weeks to to learn to play and rehearse it and get it on stage. So you have to be. You have to be pretty good to be able to do that. And uh, and and Gordon is is he's he's as good as it gets. He's really really good.
0: You know what's interesting about that is that I too grew up in New England, and I too grew up when it was the AFL. So the Boston Patriots were like, eh, you know, okay, fine. And even though the training camp was twenty miles from where I grew up. But when it came to the Eagles, Tommy McDonald was the guy I looked at. <laughs> That's the weird part about that. That his story mirrors my story.
1: Yeah, I well ever since I ever since you know I wrote Tommy and Me, which goes back to 2016 now. Uh, you know, we produced it every year since then, with the exception of 2020, which was the COVID year. Uh, but we keep bringing it back, and every time we bring it back, I keep running into people that from all over the place, I mean, in Philadelphia it's a given, I mean, that he's he's still worshipped sure. here, but I keep running into people and say, you know, I'm not even from here, you know, I'm from New York, or I'm from Ohio, or, you know, I'm from Dallas, or, you know, but, uh, you know, watching football in the 60s when pro football became a thing on TV, yes. uh, oh yeah, my favorite player was Tommy McDonald, and I fully understand it. I mean, he was you know, he was the most, he was not only one of the best players of that era, but one of the most colorful, because of his size, because of his hustle, because, you know, just because of his feistiness, uh, you know, the last guy not to wear a face mask. I mean, the whole thing. I mean, he yes. just—he had a magic about him that uh, that attracted people. Whether you were an Eagles fan or not an Eagles fan, you—he was—he was a guy that you tuned in every week to watch.
0: What do you think he would think of all this?
1: Oh, I know because he—you know—Tommy lived long enough to see the play. Yeah, uh, but, he got yeah. you know—he got to come and see it in the first year when we staged it in 2016, and he. He couldn't believe it. I mean, he really couldn't believe seeing his life story brought to the stage. It uh, it just it just really blew him away. Uh and um it was it was you know, he he only got to see it live and in person the one time. Uh but you know, when it was over, I mean, he stayed in the theater for about, you know, it had to be an hour and a half after the show, uh, posing for pictures and signing autographs and uh, just loving the attention. I mean, he was in his 80s by then and, you know, not in the best of health, uh, but the opportunity to come out and see his life story on stage, see a lot of his highlight moments played on the screen, uh, and then afterwards just bask in the glow of it. I mean, he he just loved it. And, you know, and before he left that day, he gave me a hug and he said, boy, you You did me a great favor you let me be tommy mcdonald again which was you know that's probably the nicest thing anybody said ever since we started doing this
0: you've seen various actors play this out now it's a play so there are lines they have to have you seen various ways that they've delivered it and their own sort of interpretation but using the same words
1: um, yeah. yeah, well, only two actors have done it. it uh, for the, uh, the the first six years that we did it, it was it was an actor named Tom Teddy, who is a Philadelphia-based actor, uh, and he did all the other runs. And now this time it's going to be Gordon is going to be doing okay. it. Uh, but, the, but the advantage we have with both of them is that, uh, as I told you, Gordon, even though he grew up in New, in New England, uh, grew up a Tommy McDonald fan, and Tom Teddy, the actor who played him for the first six years, is from Philadelphia and was going to the Eagles games at Franklin Field as a kid with his family, uh, and Tommy McDonald was his favorite player. So you know, so both of these guys are coming to it, you know, with with a full knowledge and appreciation of who Tommy McDonald was, and um, and really really excited about doing it. And you know, as uh, as Gordon said to me the other day, he said, well, he said the last thing I just finished doing a couple weeks ago was I was doing a one-man Robert Frost play. Uh, Mm -hmm. on tour uh and he said now i come to this he said i can i can tell you right now that tommy mcdonald is a lot more fun than robert frost
0: (laughs) no doubt about that (laughs) i know president kennedy loved robert frost but this is more fun okay
1: (laughs) all right no no doubt about that
0: yeah a lot more fun when you wrote this did you ever envision it would have a one-month run, and would have continued runs that would lead up to a one-month run?
1: No, I, no, I, di- I didn't, Steve. I, uh, you know, when I when I wrote it, I mean, I had never written a play before, so I didn't even know if it was ever going to ever going to be. Be done even once, you know I mean, uh, I wrote it because I just kind of I, I I really loved the story. It was something that I lived. you know he was my favorite player as a kid. Um, you know, I got his autograph when I was ten years old, um, you know he'd let me carry his helmet as he walked to the practice field, and it was the start of a friendship that continued on, and then it evolved when I became a sports writer and a sports journalist and a hall of fame voter. Uh, I found myself in a position to try and And get him the one thing that he wanted most in life, which was a spot in the Hall of Fame. And so you know that that's kind of, that's really kind of the, the whole story is how our, how this little this little kid who gets handed the guy his hero's helmet when he's 10 years old is leading the fight to try and get his hero into the Hall of Fame. And then when he finally does get voted in in 1998, uh, yeah. he asked me to be his presenter. So we we there we are sharing that moment on the steps of the Hall of Fame together. It was such a it was such a neat story. I wanted to tell it. I just wasn't exactly sure what was the best way to tell it. So. I got this idea, let me try it as a play, and... um uh, you know, when we did it in 2016, I was thrilled, and I thought, wow, this what a great experience. It, what a great three weeks. We sold out the house every night. You know, Tommy and his family got to see it. I mean, it was, it was really wonderful. It was really, really one of the highlights of my life, to be honest with you. But I really thought that was it. You know, I kind of thought, you know, when we, the last night when they took down the set and they packed up the props and put everything away, I figured that was kind of the end of it, and wow, well, it wasn't that fun. And then, you know, well, then it came, came back the next year, and then it came back the next year, and then other theaters heard about about it, and they wanted it. And, you know, last year we actually brought it to Hershey, as you know. Um, yes. And we, uh, you know, we got to do it in the Hershey Theater, uh, which was really cool because Hershey was where I met Tommy for the first time because that's where the Eagles had their training camp in mm-hmm. the 1950s. And so we, we did it at the Hershey Theater, and we had almost a thousand people there for one of the shows, including Dick and Carol Vermeil. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I mean, it is, it's been a wonderful experience, Steve, that has gone far beyond, I think, everybody's expectations and certainly mine.
0: If I recall how the Hall of Fame voting works, that when you get into the room, somebody has to get up and talk about said individual as to what they think their credentials happen to be. Correct. Now, I will I will assume that you were the person that got up in front of the group and talked about his credentials.
1: I did. And, I, and, I did. And what, it, fell on, and what, it fell on me to do that, yes.
0: Yeah. Yes. What did you tell them?
1: Uh, I I kept it, uh, you know, I played it straight. You know, I didn't go into the whole boyhood hero thing. I didn't go into, well, you know, when I was 10 years old, I carried his helmet and got his autograph because I I felt like that would somehow weaken his case. If I came off like a fanboy, I didn't think that the other voters would take me seriously. Um, So I I didn't even bring any of that stuff up. I mean, I just played it straight, you know, with his stats, which were plenty. I mean, at at that time, I mean, he was, he had the sixth most catches of anybody in NFL history. He had the fourth most yards and he had the second most touchdowns. Um, So I thought it was a pretty easy catch. Case to make, and I, and I couldn't really understand why. Fifteen years after he retired, he had never even been a finalist. Um, so I got up and made the pitch, and uh, um, yeah, and you know, I thought this is—I thought this was a layup. You know, I didn't think there was any way he wasn't going to make it. And they took the vote, and he—he he wasn't even a finalist again. And I—I I, I mean, it just broke my heart because I felt like, well, you know, I let him down. And it was—it uh, was another ten years of just writing letters and calling people on the phone and and stuff and campaigning that got him back on the ballot in 98 and then in 98 he finally finally did get in and uh 30 years after he retired uh and it was a long wait and a lot of disappointments along the way but but he finally got in and when he got in he asked me to be his presenter and that weekend was one I'll tell you I'll never forget
0: how long, I mean you're a writer how long did it take you to write that speech and how many times did you practice it before you delivered it in Canton?
1: Oh, oh man. Um, it, it took me a good two months to write my speech uh, because I was told, um, well, we were all told, all the presenters were told that we, we had four minutes. Right. They were. We were told that the presenters had four minutes and the inductees had six minutes. Um, So I wanted to make those four minutes count. And, um, you know, I wrote and rewrote that speech, oh, it had to be 20 times. Um, and uh, and then, but then you have to get up and deliver it, you know. And you're and you're there at this podium on the steps of the Hall of Fame, and you you get up there to the microphone and you look to your left, and you know there's Ray Nitschke and Roger Staubach and Gail Sayers and Dick Butkus, and you look to your left, and there's you know Bob Lilly and you know <laughs> yeah. Bill George and Mike Singletary, and uh, you know I mean you're you're surrounded by again these are the the greatest players that ever played this game, you know and they're all sitting on chairs around you looking at you. And, uh, I mean, if you have any sense of the history of the game or if you revere the history of the game the way I do, uh, to be in that position and then given the speech for the guy who is your boyhood idol, uh, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I mean, it's one of the few times in my life that I can honestly say I felt my knee shaking when I got up to the microphone. And, you know, I got through it, uh, thank goodness, but it was uh, it, it was really – uh, an unforgettable moment and then of course introducing Tommy and then the hug that we had and then watching him go up to the microphone and give the speech that no one will ever forget um, mm-hmm. was uh, that That was that was quite a weekend I've, there's not a time that I've gone back to the Hall of Fame since then and I've been back a number of times, including including last year for Dick Vermeel, that uh, the people don't recognize me and say, "Oh, wait, you were the guy that presented Tommy McDonald." And they start talking about you know Tommy getting up with the boombox and dancing to staying Alive" and <laughs> all the crazy all the crazy stuff that he did that no one had ever done before and no one will ever do again. But I mean, that was nineteen ninety eight, and the people in Canton are still talking about it.
0: Yeah. One of the um, I think little known things about Tommy is that you know, he he owned Tommy McDonald Enterprises. And it was, and he was, you know, he he, he did not paint himself. I mean, he no. had people create, he had people that created this stuff, and so forth. But what what got him into that? That said to him, he says, "Okay, this is an enterprise I want to be in." I mean, he had a Joe DiMaggio portrait that sold for four thousand dollars that that one of his people painted.
1: Yes, yes, um, it was um, when he was playing for the Rams. Uh, after he had left Philadelphia and uh, went to Dallas, Dallas traded him to the Rams. He went out to the Rams and, and had a couple of really, really good years with the Rams. I mean, he and, he and Roman Gabriel really had a cook in there for a few years in L.A. Uh, and so he became real popular out on the West Coast. And one day he was coming out of practice, and there was a guy standing in the parking lot waiting for him, and he had painted an oil portrait of Tommy. Uh, and he said, I, you know, I love watching you play. You're my favorite player. And here, uh, you know, I'm an artist, and I painted this portrait, and it's yours. And he gave it to Tommy, and Tommy said, wow, this is beautiful. Uh, and... And the guy gave him his card and said, "If I can ever do anything for you, let me know." And then, you know, Tommy brought it home and he hung it up. And it and occurred to him, you know, athletes and you know, celebrity type people, you know, they get they get trophies all the time, they get plaques all the time, they get framed photographs all the time. I mean, Tommy's house was full of it. But he said, you know, this is different. You know, a, a really beautiful oil portrait of you. And nobody gets these. So he got the idea of just, you know, hey, listen, why don't we, do, you know, make a business out of this? Uh, uh, so he called the guy back and asked if he was interested and the guy said, Yeah, and he said, Well we'll partner in this and you know, and, and you're the artist and I'm the marketer. And so Tommy went around and, and to all of his different sports contacts said, Hey, instead of handing a guy a plaque this year, how give him an oil portrait and and so that's how it started and it just grew and grew and grew. Uh, and gee, I mean by the time Tommy went in the Hall of Fame in ninety eight he was he was his company was doing all the oil portraits for all the Heisman Trophy winners. He was doing mm-hmm. all the All the oil portraits for all the Supreme Court justices, uh, doing them for all the Maxwell Club winners and all the Miss Americas. Um, So it became, I mean, it became a very, very successful career for him even after football.
0: One final question about him. Everybody knows that Tommy was not big in stature. He was only about 5'9, maybe 175, 180 pounds.
1: Not quite. 172 on a good day.
0: 172 on a good day. But ultra, ultra talented with impeccable instincts. How much do you think uh, people were attracted to him because he looked like the everyday guy?
1: Oh, that was a big part. Of, oh, Steve, that was a big part of it. I mean, that was a big part of it. I know that's why so many kids, like when I first, when I first crossed paths with him, I was 10. But every kid in Philadelphia loved Tommy McDonald. I mean, we were all Eagles fans, but, I mean, you, I mean, as a kid, you couldn't, as, you know, you admired Chuck Bednarik, but you couldn't relate to Chuck Bednarik. Right. I mean, he was, yes. you know, I mean, he was in his 30s, and he had, you know, and he was, and he was huge. Um, but everybody could relate to Tommy. Uh, in fact, I remember when I first met him. the locker room in Hershey and I was waiting for him uh, and he was just a rookie then, 1957, when he came out. I was 10 years old, and he wasn't much bigger than me. At least it didn't seem that way. I mean, the, all the other guys that were coming out, I mean, were just enormous in their pads and all that stuff. And he came out, and he first of all, he looked like he was about 15 years old, uh, and he wasn't much bigger than I was. So um, I think that's a big part of it is that you see this guy who looks so ordinary. He looks like the, you know, he looks like the guys you're going to school with. He looks like the guys that are in the playground with you, but yet he's he's the most explosive receiver in the league and you look at his stats back in those days uh i mean just amazing the 1960 season is probably the best example uh he only caught it was a, only a 12 game season he caught 39 passes but 13 of them were for touchdowns right. uh, his ratio of touchdowns per reception uh, are the third high, are still to this day the third highest in all of football. The only two guys that have a higher ratio of TDs to catches are Don Hudson who played for the Packers back in the 30s and Paul Warfield. Uh, and then Tommy's right there in the top three. And uh, those numbers will stand up. Those numbers will stand up in any era.
0: Well, this is going to take place um, at the Bucks County Playhouse. It'll start the 19th of May, run through June 17th. Gordon Clapp We'll star in it. Nick Corley's going to direct it. Right. And the heart and soul of it is Ray Dittinger, who will tell you that Tommy's actually the heart and soul of it, but that's,
1: you know... Oh, he, he is You're and both. always will be. Uh, and You're one of the interesting, both. one of the fun things about it is sure. that his, his children and his grandchildren keep coming back every year. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean his, his, his kids, his kids and his grandkids come back every single year, Chris and Tish and Sherry and Tommy Jr. I mean, they come back every year and the guys in the cast this year, cause it's a whole new cast. Uh, I told them that and they can't wait to meet the McDonald family and the McDonald family is really excited about coming and meeting them. Um, and they're great. I mean, I was talking to them last year when we played Bucks County and uh, you know, Chris, who's his oldest son, who later played at the University of Delaware. Um, mm-hmm. you know, said to me, said, "You know what what the great thing about your play is? It's kept dad alive for us." Which I mean, I had never I had never really thought about it that way, but I I can see that now. That every year they can come back and see this play and it's like it's like they get to spend those few hours with their father again, which is really a beautiful thing.
0: it's always a beautiful thing to catch up with you and talk about this. So thank you so much for the time you gave us today. always appreciate it. And uh, we know this is going to be another huge success. People love it.
1: Yeah, they sure do. And they keep coming back. And I hope they come back again this year. Uh, The Bucks County Playhouse in in New Hope. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful theater right on the Delaware River. And if you can come on out, we open May 19th. We run through June 17th. So hopefully, even if you got to see it before, it's an all-new production with some great actors. So please come out and see us.
0: Ray, wonderful. Thank you so much.
1: All right, thank you, Steve. Always a pleasure.
0: That's something else, isn't it?
2: Yeah, really. I've That's... I've said I I like I've done theater for decades when I was a kid. I did thirty plus productions. That's one of the best, if not the best, I've ever seen. It's a beautiful story. It's really well written, of course, by the, by Ray Diddy. It's 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 really fun. It's for anybody, too. You don't just have to be an Eagle fan or an NFL fan. It's for anybody to see. The, the story is just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: really, it's,
2: it's amazing. It really is.
0: And I'm glad that uh, he always takes the time to talk to us, to tell us more about it. All right. Back with more in a moment here on News Radio 1070 WKOK.
2: Sports Talk, where
0: your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now, from the Sunbury Motors studio, here's Steve Jones. Sunbury Motors 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors Kia, it's 11 and 15, almost warp online. SunburyMotors.com. Ford Kia Hyundai, best in new inventory with great warranties. Great pre-owned inventory with the Sunbury Motors guarantee fabulous service department that backs it all up every step of the way. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Kia Routes 11 and 15, Hummels Wharf online. SunburyMotors.com That was a
2: fascinating interview to listen to. I thought. It was. I actually never got a chance to actually hear his perspective of giving that speech at the Hall of Fame presenting Tommy McDonald. I'm not surprised any bit of what he said, but I just never, I never heard that account before of the many times that we've talked about this play. Somebody had to ask. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, my almighty! No, I keep taking the suggestions from you in the suit, and I just keep like no... <laughs> <laughs> um. So, I, I just I just found the whole thing fascinating. Listening to him talk about it. and the, the passion with which he talks about it is really cool. Really cool. He's a hall of famer in a lot of ways, and he's a hall of famer not just in terms of talent, perspective, but also personality Very impressive. Always has been, always will be. It's why everybody respects him so much. Uh, Anything else for you to complain about? I just want to make sure we're not (laughs) bypassing the uh, seventh circle of hate.
2: No, I I think I've complained enough today. And I, I can't even complain after hearing the beautiful story of Tommy McDonald again. I can't do it. All right,
0: now listen to this story. you're going to love this story. Okay? Somebody was complaining to me earlier today about something that they miss in baseball, and that is the complete game or when they take the guy out with a no hitter. Okay? And I ran across this marvelous story by Mike Vaccaro that was written 50 years after Doc Ellis threw his no-hitter. Okay. Now, this would never happen today. Now, with the analytics and pitch counts and things like that. And I think you know, Doc Ellis was an incredibly talented pitcher. But he's pitching for the Pirates. And I think everyone knows that Doc, along the way, had had a couple of, had had drug problems. Okay? Had drug problems. So, Mike Vaquero starts out the story and says when he woke late that morning, he tried to put the details together from the night before but in those days, Doc Ellis it wasn't easy. He knew the Pirates had landed in San Diego early Wednesday night after playing a noon game at Candlestick Park. All right? Now he had permission from Danny Murtaugh, who was the manager at the time to drive from his hometown in LA to San Diego. Okay. Now he claimed now according to his story, he says he had crushed an LSD tab and had snorted it and was waiting for it to kick in. And he was talking to somebody at the house he was staying in. And he says and the and the host at the house in Los Angeles said, What are you doing? He says, You have to pitch tonight. And Ellis says, No, no, no. I don't pitch till Friday. And the woman looked at him and said, it is Friday. (laughs) And and his quote was, well, what happened to Thursday? So on June the 12th, 1970, nearly 53 years ago, Doc Ellis' friend gets him in the car and rushes him to LAX to make a 330 flight to San Diego. So he gets to Jack Murphy Stadium at 4.30, and the first pitch is at 6.05 because they're playing a 20-night doubleheader that night. So he arrives at the ballpark 90 minutes before his first pitch. He then proceeds to throw a no-hitter. But this wasn't just any no-hitter. He walked eight He hit another guy. He ended up throwing 150 pitches. Bob Moose, who was going to start later in the series, it was his job to chart the pitches, and he gave up because Ellis was all over the place. Now, the Pirates are in good shape because Willie Stargell hit a couple of home runs. And... Two hours and 13 minutes later, in front of fewer than 10,000 fans, he strikes out Ed Spezio to complete the no-hitter. Dave Campbell, remember he used to broadcast for ESPN? Dave Campbell... And, by the way, it's a very good broadcaster for ESPN. Played in the game. And said, there isn't a single guy in the San Diego dugout that had any clue that Ellis was throwing a no-hitter. You want to know why? He said they had runners on every single inning. So they'll figure out ways to get them home, see what they can do, get some runs, the whole thing. Nope. You now, when you walk eight and hit one, there are runners all over the place. To his credit, Ellis was really had a terrific fastball, and Campbell said his fastball had such great late movement, always seemed to be in one place. When I'd start my swing and then move in another direction, it could sink, it could move in on the hands, sail away like a Mariano Rivera cutter. Ellis claims that day he was seeing multiple home plates. I didn't see the hitters, Ellis would admit years later. All I could tell was that they were either on the right side or the left side. The catcher had tape in his fingers to help me see the signals. But, quote, I was high as a Georgia pine. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Now, how good was he? Okay, how good was Doc Ellis? He was the starting pitcher in the 71 All-Star game. He was 14-3 and at the All-Star break that year. And he started for the National League, and Vita Blue, who just passed away, started for the American League in Detroit. So Sparky Anderson, who was then the manager of the Reds, starts Doc Ellis, and he pitched well the first two innings. But in the third inning, he hung a curveball to Reggie Jackson, and he hit it, I mean, more than 500 feet. It was a legendary all-star home run. Ellis admits that on May 1st, 1974, he was hopped up on greenies, which he claimed was his usual game-day drug of choice. He took the mound and was just mad at the Cincinnati Reds because they are always a mouthy team. So the first pitch, he hits Pete Rose with a fastball on the backside. The next pitch, he hits Joe Morgan. Third guy up was Dan Dreesen, hit him with a pitch. Then he tried to hit Tony Perez, but Perez knew what was coming and he was able to get himself a four-pitch walk. Then he went 2-0 to Johnny Bench and Murtaugh came in and took him out of the game. When the Pirates won the World Series in 71, Doc Ellis won 19 games. Eventually he became a Yankee. It was the infamous trade where the Yankees took George Doc Medich right? Doc Medich, good pitcher they traded him to the Pirates for Doc Ellis and some kid at second base by the name of Willie Randolph with the Yankees in 76 Doc Ellis won 17 games and he was also the winning pitcher in game 3 of the American League Championship Series as for Reggie Ellis reminded Reggie Jackson five years later that he had not forgotten him admiring his all-star game moonshot in Detroit. And he hit him with a pitch on a July night in Baltimore. Remember, Reggie Jackson played with the Orioles in between the A's and the Yankees. And he hit him with a pitch in Baltimore. When Ellis got to the clubhouse, he found three $100 bills in his locker, courtesy of... Billy Martin. You said, my teammates did not let me pay for a drink the rest of the season. After that, things did go downhill for him on the mound. He pitched for the A's, the Rangers, the Mets. He came back to Pittsburgh. Now, what did he do with his life? When he got out in 79, he decided to go to counseling for his drug habit. And he said at this point, you're talking about cocaine, heroin. And he beat his addiction to his credit. And he spent the rest of his career, his life, as a drug counselor, including being on the Yankees payroll. He eventually passed away at the age of 63 in 2008. He says, I'm always proud that I threw a no-hitter. I just wish it came with a story I could be prouder of. (laughs) How about that for Bazaar? He threw 150 pitches. 150. There's no manager in baseball that will let you do that, days. All sorts of stories out there. All sorts of stories, but I saw that today. So I've got to repeat that one. That's it's so many bizarre. I Maybe mean, again, you're sitting in the dugout. Do you think they're throwing a no hitter with you when there's like runners on first and third? And <laughs> you don't think that
2: and it wasn't like you
0: know one two. I mean, Matty Alou and Bill Mazurowski, by by the way, were the guys that made great plays in the field, but. Yeah, you don't think that. Eagles and Giants Christmas Day. No word yet on whether Santa is going to get an invitation. No word.
2: Santa is always welcome at the link.
0: Um, no offense, I've I've got previous evidence showing that in Philadelphia, it's a rough road. <laughs>
2: Santa needs to think twice. Just watch the 2017 tape. We're fine now. He didn't go. (laughs) I'm sorry. When
0: you're afraid, you don't go. I'm sorry. Well, I'll tell you. I want to talk about luck. The Yankees are playing with their 40th home game out of 50 so far and they've got the A's in town.
2: Yeah, and Anthony Volpe hit a grand salami today, the first of his career. Yeah, and this but these these games can't count. <laughs> Can they? As do of now they do. Count? These games can't possibly count. I think the series came at a great time for the Yankees to maybe snap out of this offensive funk that's been in for like they, the last month before they play the Rays again this weekend.
0: I mean, do you know what the what the starting pitcher's ERA is for Oakland?
2: It's like over eight. Yeah, yeah, it's it's bad. I mean, they're eight and 30. Today's game they're, was a four-2 game in the fifth, and the Yankees again were having their same issues with offense and uh, Brito was again stinking up the place, and then all of a sudden they just in, the eight, A's just implode.
0: eight and 30.
2: Yeah, I know. They are eight and 30.: I have never seen anybody that bad. And I've never seen a team implode that bad in one inning.
0: And your team, and you're acting as if this is phenomenal, what the Yankees are doing.
2: It's what they should be doing, but but I'm saying it came at the right time to hopefully snap this offense out of the funk that they're in.
0: This team's a horror show. You know what the team ERA is? Guess what the team ERA is of the Oakland A's? 731
2: I thought it was higher, to be honest with you. Seven point. Well, against the Yankees, it's been able to come down. No, I'm just kidding. It's going to go back up today with 11
0: runs across the board. A opposing hitters are hitting 288 against the A's. 288? Are you kidding me? Let's see. Offensively, what's this team hitting offensively? They're hitting 233. They're hitting fifty-five points lower than what their pitchers are giving
2: up. Hence the eight and thirty mark. Okay. (laughs) You know what their on base percentage is? 313. I was I was even gonna go lower, but okay. Their slugging percentage is three seventy-eight. These guys
0: stink. (laughs) They're
2: awful. There's a reason still, why still they've done some of this stuff for the first time since like the 1800s. Jeez.
0: They only average 7 strikeouts per 9 innings as a pitching staff. They've had 6 quality starts, 8 wins, okay? They have 4 saves so far. And I don't know how many games they've blown. After the seventh inning, there've been a whole bunch. Yeah, Lee, this is the team you schedule for homecoming. All right, we'll come back with more in a moment here on News Radio 1070 WKOK.
2: Always
0: You actually have the gall to play that when you're playing the A's. (laughs) I mean, seriously. I mean, the guy I feel badly for is Richard Lovelady. He's a relief pitcher for the A's. He has a 1.93 ERA. He pitched in today's game, gave up nothing, right? Here's a guy that's now pitched in 10 games. There's only one game he's given up a run this year. One. And it turned out he blew a save. But it's the only game he gave up a run. He has pitched in 10 games. The A's have lost nine of the 10 games he's pitched in. He has two holds. The one game they won was over Kansas City, and he got a hold in that game. But he's got a 1.93 ERA. Five of the ten games he's pitched in hasn't given up a hit. Like, the guy's actually pitched really well, and nobody would know it on a team with a 7.16 ERA. Yikes. <laughs> Unreal. Muller was the starter, 7.34. Garcia came in. His ERA is now 15. Ujanami, his ERA is now 12.52. Love ladies ERA
2: 1.93. <laughs> this is what you're playing all rise for. You know what? This kind of, kind of was like a homecoming game atmosphere for the Yankees today because it was 12 first pitch and there were tons and tons of like school groups in the upper deck today. So it kind of had that feel. It was great. Great.
0: <laughs> right now the Yankees are tied for first in most home games played. Do you know that? It doesn't surprise me. That's all they do is play at home. Then they gave him the A's, three-game sweep. Shocking. Wow. And you're doing all rise? It wasn't like they beat Tampa Bay. No, they're next again this weekend. Well, that's a sweep. <laughs>